Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast. It's called The Vocal Fries, and it's hosted by Carrie Gillen and Megan Figueroa. They are linguists, and they talk to other linguists and assorted other people about the way we talk about each other. There are a lot of really excellent episodes on The Vocal Fries, and it's easy to find. I recommend that you just type The Vocal Fries podcast into Google, and you will find it very easily. We like this podcast a lot, and we like it so much that we're going to give you a little sample. The episode you're about to hear is from The Vocal Fries. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Vocal Fries Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Megan Figueroa. And I'm Carrie Gillen. Oh, I have a little bit of a cold, so forgive me. <laughs> it's just making my vocal fry cooler, really. <laughs> <laughs> it does intensify when you have a cold, it's true. <laughs> so Carrie sent me this article. So the headline is, uh, Woman with Rare Medical Condition Unable to Hear Men's Voices. And... Um, <laughs> It just reminds me of my voice getting deeper because the actual problem that the woman had is that she couldn't hear below a certain frequency. Right. Right. So men's voices, I don't know, tend to be lower than women's. Um, of course, this is complicated by lots and lots of things, but... But generally speaking, it's... Yeah. Yeah. They're lower. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because of the amazing jokes that were made about this. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, she's she's uh, expected to make a full recovery, so I feel like it's okay to to joke about this a bit. But yeah, so um, it's a rare thing. Cuts off deeper, lower frequency sounds. Uh, she woke up and couldn't hear her boyfriend's voice, and that would be really terrifying. Yeah, it really would be terrifying. We we mock. We were like, oh, how lucky she is. She can't <laughs> hear men. Yeah. <laughs> Bloviate. Yeah. <laughs> But, but really, that would be so terrifying. Um, but once I found out that it was going to clear itself up, I guess I'd be like, well, I might as well, you know, strap in and enjoy this ride. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the jokes about how you can't hear all the mansplaining. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, you can still read it. It's true. <laughs> What's going to fix that for us? <laughs> I don't know. Let's create an ex- you know how easy an extension would be for Chrome or whatever to just, I don't know. I don't know how that would work. But yeah, it's really difficult because you don't want to mute all wells and all I was going to say, okay, <laughs> but, but what about the, um, the combo? Like it has to be together. If we get well, actually. You'll miss some great jokes. It's true. <laughs> Women and non-binary people are funny. <laughs> We're making some great jokes at the expense of, at the expense of men. So yeah. And just um, so people know, it's apparently called reverse slope hearing loss. Wow. Do you know if it's always, it, it's always, um, not permanent uh i have no idea i'm not a doc that kind of doctor you're not you're not an ear nose and throat specialist (laughs) turns out i don't have an md no um so apparently it affects one in thirteen thousand patients with with hearing problems and so this is very rare oh my partner has has terrible issues um has terrible ringing all these things um so I totally feel for this woman, but yeah. sometimes okay. you have to laugh. <laughs> um, well, it's just such a specific <laughs> yeah. thing that it's kind yeah. of funny. Sorry. I mean, when I when I read the ty- the headline, I was like, I could almost predict what was going to be the issue, um, that it was going to be like lower frequency sounds, but yeah, it's 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 still good. It's- <laughs> Speedy recovery to Yeah, we to hope her. her well. Anyone who suffers from this, we don't want them to suffer anymore. No, no. I mean, it, it, 
you know, you might not be able to hear me eventually. Like, I just keep it going down. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing we were going to talk about is the, but one of the most recent presidential (laughs) runners. Uh, yeah, put it, uh, throwing his hat into the, well, at least the Democratic uh, pool, uh, Julian Castro. The cool thing about uh, Julian Castro and his nomination, or his announcing his uh, candidacy for president, is that it was done in both Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time that, um, at least what I was hearing, and I'm pretty sure, it was the first time that um, someone has done that. It seems very likely that that's the first time. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there's a couple things about that. First, wow. How is that the first? Like, um, this being the first time in 2019 just like reinforces um, the idea, or at least for me, that it's not shocking that some people forget that English is not (laughs) the first language here or, you know, like that the, that the, the linguistic landscape isn't more complicated. I think a lot of people just don't think about it because... These things don't haven't happened before, and it's kind of ridiculous that it's taken this long. Right. Yeah, I don't think any other language has been used, right? Just English. Yeah. So it's interesting in that respect that it's the first time that's happening, especially since, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's a especially sense here. It's just It just boggles my mind. I'm not surprised at all because it's such an English-centric country. Yeah. Fuck, we love we uh we love English here, but only because only for racist symbolist symbolism reasons and shit. It's like the linguistic wall. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved it um, that it was both in Spanish and English. Like I've said multiple times, I'm not a native Spanish speaker. Yeah, but my dad is. Um, but I struggle with this thing of like I'm a native Spanish speaker, and there are so many. Um, Latinx people that say that that makes me a little um, less uh, Latina. And um, so uh, as a Latina, I knew that Julian, who is also not a native Spanish speaker, um, I think for similar reasons that his, you know, they just, our parents want us to succeed. And a lot of times that means dropping Spanish because of the discrimination that that our ancestors faced. So people are already in his mentions and everywhere saying he doesn't even speak Spanish. Or, you know, like, he's not a real Spanish speaker. Or, why is he doing this? Or That is so distressing yeah. to me. Yeah. Like, why can't you be a second language speaker? Why isn't that good enough? Yeah. Or not even care to learn it at all. But then you're not going to use it, right? So, like, I like the idea that he wants to use Spanish in his, like, right. speech, right? Like, hey, I'm running for president. That's great. But you yeah. have to be at least somewhat of a speaker. Otherwise, it's just going to sound terrible. <laughs> right, right. Well, yes. Yes. I mean, so many white politicians have done this. <laughs> yeah. Where they're like, oh, I'm going to pander to the Latinos and I'm going to use Spanish. Um, Remember which... the Newt Gingrich that I uh, pulled? Oh, God. Yeah, oh, that was terrible. my God. I know. I think even I could sound better than that. And I'm not, like, I barely know Spanish at all. <laughs> right. Right. And then inherent in that is the assumption that all Latinos speak Spanish. It's just like... Well, there's that too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but no, his Spanish was... I mean... I don't, it was embarrassing. It was. And it's Newt Gingrich, so he can go fuck himself. That's why I'm making fun of the way you speak Spanish. For multiple reasons. Well, I think it was on purpose, right? Like, I don't... Yeah. I feel like his super anglicized Spanish was like... I'm going to speak this language because I think it will help me, but I'm not going to do a good job at it because that would make me look like a a Spanish lover or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And here's something else to watch out for. If Beto O'Rourke does run for president, they're going to compare these two Texans because Beto is, uh, um, you know, he learned Spanish and English. Mm -hmm. Um. And that's not what Julian's experience is. And one is Latino and one is not. And it's there's going to be a lot of fucked up shit said about this. Um, it's already starting with Julian. So keep an eye out. <laughs> Note that it's happening. Note that it's fucked up. Yeah. That, so you know, be interesting first steps. To see if Beto gets like 
oh, it's so awesome that this white guy is speaking our language. Oh, it was already happening when he was running for Senate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I want I'm, it to be from the same people so we can be like, you hypocrites. How yeah. dare you? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Always outraged. I know. I feel like that's just like life in the 21st century. It really is. <laughs> and so when everyone was like, outrage culture is bad. It's like, well, yeah, but it's really hard not to be outraged. It is. Are you asleep? <laughs> um, also, uh, I've suppressed my anger and outrage for a really long time. So uh, let me have this. <laughs> and if you're not going to let me have it, I don't care. Yeah. No, there's no permission required. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Exactly. So this Julian story is perfect for what our episode is about today. Yeah. It's a special episode. Um, a very special episode. <laughs> it's a very special episode with a very special man and a very special book coming out. And it feels like uh, you're sitting in his seminar at Stanford. And I feel we feel so lucky to have had this to be able to chat with him about his book, looking like a language, sounding like a race, um, racial linguistic ideologies, and the learning of Latinidad. And it is to be published. 22nd of January, so it's coming out soon. Uh, we hope you enjoy this uh, very special episode. It's pretty high level, so... Yeah. <laughs> Put your thinking cap caps on. Yeah, definitely uh, interact with us on Twitter if you have any questions or conversation starter questions, whatever. Because um, this is a very interesting episode, and I had a lot of fun talking to Jonathan. Mm -hmm. He is one of my faves. So here we go. <laughs> Today we are talking to Dr. Jonathan Rosa. He is an assistant professor at Stanford University in the Graduate School of Education and the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. He has courtesy appointments in the Departments of Linguistics and Anthropology, and his research focuses on race and um, racialization, youth socialization, education, semiotics, language ideologies, Latinx identity, colonialism, and social change. We are super excited to talk to him today about his new book, which has the most beautiful title, <laughs> um, Looking Like a Language, Sounding Like a Race, Racial-Linguistic Ideologies, and the Learning of Latinidad. Thank you for being here with us, Jonathan. We're very excited. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We need to start off with some just like common definitions for everyone, <laughs> for our listeners. And for us. And for us. Yeah. Let's start with what's a language ideology? Hold on. I didn't know I was coming to seminar today. So we're doing the full, <laughs> because this is a genealogical project. I would have to lay out some bodies of literature. We need to really establish the terrain if we're going to get into this. This will take a 10-week sort of engagement. <laughs> I will say... What's so cool to me about the concept of language ideologies is that it takes boundaries that look fixed and it takes what seem to be objectively existing objects or discrete kinds of objects. Let me just say that language ideologies helps us to understand how we have come to inhabit and inherit these naturalized categories, named languages, Sens sensuous experiences of those languages, ideas about correctness and ideas about uh, where uh, in time and, and space a given language is naturally occurring or is its sort of rightful position. So language ideologies is a way of thinking about a whole range of historical, political, and economic, as well as embodied, experiential, and affective dimensions. And so for me, it ends up sort of revolutionizing what linguistics could be as a field, what sociolinguistics could be as an intellectual project, and what linguistic anthropology can be as a subfield within the discipline of anthropology. So I think language ideologies is a way of drawing some connections across all these different sorts of domains. Yeah, and um, using it as a tool in academia is one way to to look at language ideologies, but we have them no matter if we're a linguist and anthropologist, what, right? So everyone has language ideologies. Yeah, I think that point is so important because often the concept of ideology is invoked pejoratively. Yes. So the sense is you're being ideological. 
let's get to this space where we're unbiased and where our ways of understanding and conceptualizing and representing the world are not distorted by these ideologies. So the ideologies are seen as are often represented as a kind of veil that or a fog that gets in the way of our true unfiltered, unmediated encounter with reality. And the goal is to actually get to reality, which is behind the ideology. So that's not how I see things. I see things as by definition ideological and in other ways, in other words, situated and positioned somewhere in space and time and history and uh, so sociality. The question for me with language ideologies isn't how do we get beyond them? The question is which ideologies are in play in any given instance and which ideologies are organizing and regimenting experiences of reality and everyday relationships. And so ideologies as a concept is really helpful as a scalar kind of um, analytic too, to, to think about what is happening interactionally in, in quote unquote real time, but also what's happening across history. Um, so you get, and what's happening in various multiple kinds of um, real times um, in a sort of co-eval moment. So I think it's a, a I'm, I'm obviously a, on one level, one of these sorts of uh, very canonically oriented people where I think linguistic anthropology and the concepts that it has contributed to the creation of are the coolest things in the world. So for me, language ideologies, I will wave that flag, you know, in sort of a very, very um, insular, nerdy way. On another level, I'm also deeply sort of ambivalent about the limitations of linguistic anthropology as a field and of normative disciplinary projects more broadly. So I'm excited by language ideologies and what we can do with it, but by no means do I think that this concept is a catch-all or is the answer to the world's problems. So that if we would just understand our ideologies, then we would all heighten our so-called critical language awareness and magically the structure of the economy would transform and everything would in in a moment decol become decolonized and yeah yeah <laughs> gender and sexuality and class formations would disappear into the ether if war is over yeah empire <laughs> would dissipate and the world would become sustainable and renewable and our ecologies would be healthy um so yeah i think it's a cool concept and something that can really contribute to and and refine our thinking but it has its limitations as well right and i this um brings it very nicely into um, what is uh, a racio-linguistic language ideology? Is there a way to think about this without looking at history? No, I mean, I think this is one of the, the biggest challenges with race as a concept and as a historical predicament, as an existential phenomenon. I worry that now, on one level, race is a deeply embodied phenomenon and a deeply experiential phenomenon. So that it has to do with the way that people navigate their everyday lives and the profound kinds of constraints in relation to which their lives are are structured and, and, and situated. So I, I get that race on one level isn't just about history by itself. It's about what is happening in this contemporary moment and possible future. So lots of different sorts of timescales. On another level, I worry that our discussions of race are often limited to the contemporary moment and to the body. So that we think that race is something that emanates off of the body and can be read off of the body. And then we presume that we will address racial hierarchies by reorganizing the positions of bodies within existing sorts of worlds and structures. And so I think I, I'm concerned that often our ahistorical or sort of dehistoricized approaches to race misunderstand the nature of what race is as a phenomenon that doesn't just reduce to the body. That's about infrastructure. It's about colonialism. It's about, as Christina Sharp says in her analysis of, of anti-blackness, it's a, a total climate. It's the weather. So there are atmospheric kinds of characteristics of dimensions of race that I'm interested in exploring that defy, I think, our pragmatic social science sorts of approaches to understanding the world. So even within linguistic anthropology and a concept like language ideologies, it signals that there are these sorts of more 
existential thing, ex existential sorts of dynamics at play. I think that that's what ideology is supposed to on some level, although it's been mobilized as a pragmatic tool. So the, the, the way that people use, many people use language ideologies is to say there is an empirical linguistic form and then there are ideologies that are mapped onto that form that construe our perception of that form as right or wrong, as good or bad, as feminine or masculine, as racialized in a certain way, socioeconomically classed in a certain way. What I'm suggesting is that race as a historical existential problem means that it transforms the materiality of the world, which is of language, of the body, of infrastructures, so that race can race is operating on a different kind of plane, I'm thinking historically and politically and economically, that defies some of our empiricist logics, methodologies, ways of understanding the world and, and ways of experiencing the world. So it's it's important for me to toggle back and forth between these historical and contemporary dynamics. But the concept of racial-linguistic ideologies emerged as a way of reflecting on and engaging with these sorts of insights to say there's this existential quality to language, which is we often try to figure out from a normative sociolinguistic perspective, what are the relevant social categories, what are the relevant social fo linguistic forms that correspond to those categories, how are they naturalized in relation to one another, this sort of thing. And I think that what a raciolinguistic perspective is about on some level is trying to figure out those histories of naturalization, trying to figure out their institutional consequentiality, and trying to figure out how race plays in an, an, a particular, a unique role in bundling all of these processes together. And so it's not a way of avoiding class or gender or sexuality or ability or all kinds of religion and different, all kinds of axes of difference. It's a way of saying this is a lens into those axes and their dynamic interplay. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it's a useful space, problem space um, in which to think. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking of an example of how a consequence of our history with race would be segregated schools. On one level, segregated schools. On another level, the histories of policy that created segregation practically or regulated segregation practically. On another level, histories of settler colonialism and enslavement that allowed in an existential way for populations to have always been segregated, regardless of the prevailing policy regime. Then also a subsequent sort of post-segregation or desegregation moment in which these institutions can be more segregated than ever, even as our policies re-articulate. So this kind of set of concerns around the existential nature of these structures is what I'm interested in, that they might articulate in a given way in a school or in a residential housing pattern or in a workplace or in the criminal justice system or in migration. These, they might articulate these racial dynamics in particular ways and in specific kinds of contexts, but it's trying to figure out the relationships across those contexts that's most important to me. And so what are the historical kinds of structuring processes involved? And I find that colonialism, and this is why history is the the reference point here, or colonialism is the reference point in history is so crucial to our understandings of what race means and what language means. And I think it's unsettling for empirical researchers to feel like, wait a second, I'm being trained to observe reality, whether it's in terms of language or other kinds of cultural practices or other kinds of observable, observable phenomena. To, when you say, wait, there are these historical processes that defy observation, in certain ways that that trouble and unsettle uh, uh, observation and in fact our incapacity to observe them and perceive them is central to the rearticulation and reproduction of power when you suggest that that's very challenging because you're essentially saying that our discipline is not only ill-equipped to engage with particular sorts of issues it's that inability that is actually quite systematic and that allows our intellectual projects to be tied to the reproduction of the very systems that we understand ourselves to be uniquely able to observe and analyze. I'm thinking about this in my own personal experience that I would not have any insight unless I lived it, lived as a Latina. But I think that I'm one of the people that don't look like a language or at least don't look like Spanish. I'm just thinking about how like, I know that I went to a very segregated school um, where um, my, my dad grew up in a place that was very segregated. 
Uh, I think about redlining. I think about all these things that came before us that got us each to where we were and how that affects whether um, he taught me Spanish. Like all of these things that are working together that ended up where what my language languages look like. And also on top of that, to go back to the colonialism, the fact that your dad spoke Spanish in the first place. Yes. It's like a lot. There's a, a lot in there. Yeah. Where, where our family has been for at least five generations in Sonora, Mexico, um, it could have been Chiaki or something else, right? I don't know. Like, um, So yes, Spanish is also a thing that came about if we're looking at this historically. So it's kind of wild to think about all these things. I can see why some people are scared of doing it because <laughs> it's just too much for them. Or, you know, it's just, it's a lot to think about. Yeah, there's so much in here that you've already said in the in the past, like, what is it, 20 minutes or so, that to unpack. And it's absolutely true that we, we can't really interrogate anything without understanding what system we're a part of. Yeah, you dabble with this every day. Please help us. Help us. What are we <laughs> No, I, I, I'm sitting, I described it as a problem space, and that's borrowing from the anthropologist and historian David Scott, who I think uses that concept really productively. So it's not a space of resolution. I, I don't purport to have sorted out yeah. the, some kind of answer. It's more, yeah. this is a useful positionality. This is a useful lens to use to make sense of, or to, to begin to get a grasp of these really complex, interrelated historical and contemporary and future dynamics. So the, the way that as you were describing your embodied experience of being perceived as looking like a language or not looking like a language, that kind of thing, that kind of embodied knowledge and the the sorts of uh, feminists of color um, who have theorized that sort of a, a concept is central to the, the work that I'm trying to do in the book and to sort of think about, wait, what is embodied knowledge as a way of making sense of forms of knowing that defy our conventional conceptions of how you would prove that you have gained some sort of insight. And so this is something that my close colleague Nelson Flores and I joke about all the time and many folks who are working from a range of marked positionalities in mainstream institutions. There are things that you know by virtue of your lived experience that you also understand that no amount of evidence would allow you to prove. Right. Yes. We we got to the we got to this this situation where a lot. Okay, this is going to Latinidad because you're also interested in the construction of Latinidad. Um, we, if you're Latinx, you have different ways of trying to portray or define yourself, and a lot of that is because of historical elements that are forcing, uh, forced on us. Like I have to prove myself to be this way or that way to be part of this community or to survive in this world that doesn't want me this kind of thing and our language is a big part of that and this is what what I want to ask you what does it mean to look like a language to look like a language is to inherit history in a particular way and to be regulated by history and to be confronted with the histories and and that are made relevant that are interactionally made relevant but also existentially made relevant to one's everyday experiences so that the sense is that you're supposed to embody something and that embodiment is supposed to be legible in such a way that it facilitates particular forms. It's imagined as facilitating particular forms of communication and constraining or cutting off other forms altogether. So hence our notion of for you know what a native language is, what a language barrier is, or a language gap and all these sorts of yes. ways that we <laughs> talk about boundaries around language forms. And then boundaries around identities and boundaries around political territories and boundaries around historical moments. And the, co the, the naturalization of all those boundaries is what it means to look like a language. Or let's say the, the collective naturalization of those boundaries is what facilitates a process of looking like a language or sounding like a race. So it's at once this deeply interactional and interpersonal phenomenon that's mundane and casual that could unfold in a restaurant, unfold in a commercial setting, unfold in school, unfold at home or a whole range of community contexts, unfold um, in relation to a census taker, a police officer, a uh, TSA agent, an ICE official, these kinds of things. And what look like uh, 
what looks like a metaphor such as the language police becomes all too real in relation to a whole range of contexts. And I think that rubrics like looking like a language and sounding like a race are, are an attempt to contribute to our collective understanding of, of those kinds of structuring processes, historical structuring processes. And in the case of race and language, for me, it involves colonialism, modern colonialism, and the, the political and economic formations that emerged out of it, and the ways that our mundane, everyday interactions are profound sites for the rearticulation of those histories. Could you just give us an example um, of one of those situations? Of looking like a language or sounding like a race? Yeah. Lots of examples. It was funny in the, the context of the book. So the book is about a high school in Chicago whose student body is roughly 95% Mexican and Puerto Rican. There was a, a Puerto Rican teacher who joked about how he wants his classroom to feel like family, or he said familia in Spanish. But he said one of the things he always does when he enters the classroom is an eyeball check to see how many of the students are, um, the word he used was Latino in this case, and uh, he's a Puerto Rican man, and he said he does an eyeball check, and that's what allows him to know how much Spanish he can use. And so his the sense is that and then he would, he would, based on his eyeball check, he would calibrate the amount of Spanish he would use. And based on his, the stereotypes that he was mobilizing about how race, how Latinidad is made legible on the body and whose bodies read as, as Latino bodies in the category that he's using. And this is a way of trying to create family, I should say. So he's trying to create intimacy in the classroom, doing an eyeball check, and he then would calibrate how much Spanish he would speak. And it was funny, um, the eyeball check is sort of on one level totally understandable. On another level, it's tricky on, <laughs> in, in multiple ways because, yeah. first of all, the Latino students, the students who identify as Latino in this case, in this context, they weren't calling themselves Latinx um, very much. Some would use gender-specific um, terms, but most of them would say that they were Hispanic or Latino. Many of them would remind this teacher, we don't speak Spanish. Stop speaking to us in Spanish. So the, the very students whose bodies were made racially legible to him in a particular way are then, and whose racial legibility authorizes him to use language. He understands their racial legibility to authorize Spanish language use. They reject that. On the other hand, many bodies don't present as Latino that could be Latino bodies or people who might self-identify. Um, and so we'd want to think about where, you know, Afro-Latinos fit into that picture, where indigenous Latinos fit into that picture, where Asian Latinos fit into that picture. And we can talk about whiteness and Latinidad, which is a very complex conversation, too. <laughs> yeah. So the, that's, that's looking like a language. But then the, the sounding like a race piece is the way in which the students and the teachers and community members and administrators were grappling with these sorts of perceptions of people's identities in relation to their language use. And so the the first the transition between the first and the second half of the book ends with a young woman who was she's a she's a freshman and she says to the students, she's Latina, and she says to a small group of students, um, do I sound ghetto when I talk? Do I look ghetto? And she's grappling with the ways that what she sounds like and what she looks like don't reduce to who she is and don't reduce to her language practices. Her sounding like and looking like are these sorts of, are sites of anxiety that defy empirical practice in, in any straightforward way. And so there's this existential way in which race, class, gender position her as ghetto and position her language practices as ghetto or can position them in such ways and that she is aware of that positioning and she's articulating it. And so that's a, a question of what she sounds, what, what language she sounds like. Or I'm sorry, what race she sounds like. And this, she was asking about if she sounded ghetto in English. In English, yeah. So, I mean, which is really important. So, and of course, we want to think about, again, the, the specific kind of race, class, gender dynamics that are associated with a concept like ghetto. Um, but she's making sense of the ways that even her English isn't ever good enough. So that the story, based on that teacher's stereotype, what makes Latinos Latinos is Spanish. The students reject that and say, no, we use English and Spanish comfortably many of the students then we want to think about the ways that indigenous languages are positioned in relation to spanish and all this kind of thing how spanish becomes racialized and marginalized in the u.s context while it's hegemonic and elevated in the latin american context mm -hmm. 
So these students are making sense of these multiple positionalities in, in relation to each other, um, while also recognizing that their English is not enough. Many of these students, their U.S. citizenship is not enough to position them as legitimate Americans and legitimate youth, legitimate adolescents, this kind of thing. And so they're making sense of the the ways that these narratives that we've circulated about what inclusion and equality look like are are don't correspond to their everyday lives. And they're deeply aware of that. And this goes back to boundaries. Absolutely. We might even say borders. So they're, they're, they're negotiating borders between Spanish and English. And there is a historical reason for it. We've got to this place for a reason. And there's a reason why she is concerned of whether or not she sounds ghetto. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's making sense of, on the one hand, what a school is in relation to a broader socioeconomic structure and the ways that schools are often popularly imagined as the sites of access to upward socioeconomic mobility, even though what schools have done really well historically is reproduce a highly stratified economic structure where so few people have access to uh, career opportunities, higher education opportunities that are substantive. So the idea about ghetto-ness is making sense of an institutional structure, uh, making sense of an economic structure, also making sense of these boundaries around identities. And so what the book tries to analyze, I think, collectively is how borders around languages and varieties of languages, borders around ethno-racial categories, and borders around geopolitical territories are negotiated and naturalized jointly so that as the students are grappling with their simultaneous Mexicanness, Americanness, Latin Americanness, and all these sorts of diasporic and domestic sorts of identities. They're making sense of their relationship with languages and varieties of languages, and they're making sense of their relationships with ethno-racial categories as Hispanic, as Latino, as Mexican, as Puerto Rican, this kind of thing. There are all of these efforts that they're facing within a school to manage their identities and transform their identities. And so the, the book kind of looks at how these borders come to be created and how people push back against them and respond to them and sometimes reproduce them. There's a lot of erasure when it comes to the Latinx community because so many people that are outside of the Latinx community assume that everyone's Mexican. So <laughs> I I think that I got a little taste of this uh, I um, in an example from your book where um, a kid was playing Xbox, right? And someone um, over... Uh, the internet so someone he didn't know says that he sounded Mexican um, and when people say you sound Mexican I think it's usually as a catch-all for you to you sound like you're brown or you know Latinx from somewhere where they speak Spanish right so it's kind of like a catch-all as far as I'm I've seen in the United States in the United States yes when they say you sound Mexican and it might be true that you are Mexican Mexican-American um, but it's not always the case and you know, I, I wonder, what are they picking out when they do that? What, what's happening there? Yeah, that's what prompted that question and that conversation. I went on to have a whole... So that interaction comes up later in the book where I had a text message exchange with him afterwards because I was trying to get at this very issue of when you were playing Xbox and someone told you that you sound Mexican or they, they, they referred to him as Mexican. And he says in response to that, you know, because I asked him, do you have an accent? And he said, no, I think I might, though. And he said, because I, when I'm playing video games on Xbox Live, I'm just talking like this. And they come and say I'm Mexican out of nowhere. And, you know, and he says, and I was just talking English. And so he's coming to terms with the ways in which his English is racialized, as, as you suggest, as brown. So that has to do with a whole range of stereotypes that position Latinidad as this brown intermediary mestizo category. And we want to think about that um, and what gets erased there. But Mexicanness does become a reference point. It's really tricky, though, because Mexicans are, of course, two thirds of the U.S. Latinx population. And so while on one level, vis-a-vis -vis Central Americans and a whole range of, of groups, we would want to understand how Mexicans can be positioned at, you know, how, other, how there's a, conse a consequentiality to the homogenization of uh, Latinxes as Mexican and the ways that certain groups, especially Central American groups, who are U.S.-based, who are forced to migrate multiple borders and forced to undergo various modes of marginalization in relation to each of those borders, I think it, it absolutely makes sense for us to interrogate these stereotypes about Mexicanness. On another level, I want to be really careful about not flattening out Mexicanness, because, which is internally so complex and yeah. internally 
you know, stratified in so many different ways. And so I think we have to be really careful about um, neither neither homogenizing Latinidad as Mexican nor homogenizing Mexicanness. Um, and so I think it requires us to sort of figure out how is it that populations are being positioned in relation to each of these categories? How is it that those positionings have shifted and a range of historical moments? And, and what are the consequences of these positionings? So that's what I'm up to in, in this work and especially trying to figure out how in a, a given institutional setting, how all of these sorts of historical dynamics cohere as as parts of uh, as are are animated through specific projects of of the self or or ways of managing uh, an organization or a space or or identities and relationships and this kind of thing. So, yeah, that's that's I think the the way that I'm trying to come at at, at these sorts of phenomena. Yeah, you've opened up a can of worms that's so important to open. <laughs> it's it's really funny i so i've been dealing with this looking like a language sounding like a race thing since my master's thesis more than 10 years ago so it's been i've been sitting with it for a really long time the the kind of basic the basic insight but the conceptual framework that has come out of it that i've worked on collaboratively especially with nelson flores who is my a kind of ride or die. But that, that collaboration has been really important in terms of, I think, our unique ways of, of coming at some of, these, um, some of these questions around, wait, what are these institutional designations that we have for language use? You know, an English language learner, a heritage learner, a standard English learner. And how is it that people have been positioned as separate from one another? And that that positioning ends up being really, really consequential in terms of one's access to different learning opportunities. And how is it that when race enters into the discussion, suddenly these distinctive categories and practices don't look that different from one another? And we can sort of point to some organizing principles and organizing sorts of patterns involved. Um, so yeah, the, the racio-linguistic kind of perspective thing that Nelson and I have been working on for some time now has been um, a really important, I think, part of of giving some form to the, the, the insight of, around looking like a language and sounding like a race. What are we doing to students when we label them English language learners? Oh, Lord. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, I am I am simultaneously a pragmatist in terms of understanding that I work with I work in our teacher education program at Stanford. I work in schools in an ongoing way, and there are a lot of administrators and teachers who want to know. Okay, we have to be in a classroom tomorrow. So what are we doing? So it's yeah. nice for you to reflect on how these borders were naturalized, and it's really complex and historically specific, and X Y and Z. I'm faced with a classroom full of students tomorrow. So, you know, what, what's going on? So I think it's a question of figuring out what categories we're inheriting, what policies stipulate, what kinds of categories are stipulated by policy, what it means to work within and beyond those policies so that we're not simply reproducing them on their own terms. So when you say, what are we doing to students when we label them as English learners, I hesitate to just answer that straight out because I think we're doing lots of things. And there might be people who are using that label and then on one level, but then strategically repositioning their students in all, as, as students who are linguistically dexterous and skillful um, in so many other ways. Because I think the label emerges out of a deficit perspective, clearly, and even our notion, what I write about in the book and in some of my other work is how our mainstream institutional definition of bilingualism in the United States and bilingual education was a euphemism for linguistic deficiency. So that the kids who are positioned as bilingual are kids who are viewed as linguistically inferior. So, and therefore participating in the quote unquote transitional bilingual education program. So that bilingual never meant the use of two or more languages. Bilingual meant use of inability to produce forms of English that are understood as proficient. That definition of bilingualism in the United States is a sad one. The, the tricky part is, is not simply the knee-jerk re, sort of progressive response would be to simply affirm diversity, affirm bilingualism. And I think we have to be careful with that as well. So it's always bilingualism defined on whose terms, diversity in service of what, and what's the broader vision of change that we're embracing here? Is the goal just simply to 
valorized bilingualism to make it a good thing because what we see so often is that once you make it a good thing, good is often commodified. And once something is commodified, particular populations will derive value from it and it will be used to harm and extract and dispossess other populations. This is a really good point because uh, think about dual language immersion and who benefits the most are white middle class kids. They're the ones that get the benefits of this and they get the good PR, if we'll call it that. Right. Yeah, they're going to be the ones that are going to be able to put on their resumes or their CVs that they speak Spanish fluently. And the, this is the this is the difficulty with the concept of fluency. So when language use is defined outside of when we are making sense of what legitimate language use is based on these sorts of what Guadalupe Valdez calls curricularized assessments of language use, then we've removed language from any kind of context of use outside of those sorts of assessments so that there are people who are using languages all day long to navigate their everyday lives who are framed as people who are not proficient users of that language. Vice versa, there are people who cannot use that language to navigate spaces outside of mainstream academic context, but who are positioned as expert users of that language. Once we have that kind of a reality, we should have to sort of take many steps back to say, how did we get here where the kinds of expertise that we're celebrating and cultivating and assessing and using to stigmatize particular sorts of people are, I mean, we could be doing so much better, which is why I say, what are we doing when we're labeling people as English language learners? We're doing a lot of things and we could be doing a lot better. Right. And this is not even to say what happens with the tracking inside the schools once you're labeled ELL or English language learner. Um, We see it all the time. And people think, I think people think that it's not happening anymore. And I say, uh, tracking of kids, like this kind of like nefarious tracking where we're like, these kids are going to be, I don't know. Basically, we're funneling a a generation into like, special education courses that they don't need because we don't understand how their language works because it works perfectly fine, but we assume it doesn't. Well, this is where the the interrelations among special education and language learning, or one of the, the places where they intertwine, where the, the particular form of, of deficiency associated with language and the particular form of deficiency associated with ableism and ableist sort of institutional structures are so closely connected to one another. One teacher articulated that um, really explicitly to me. She said, yeah, our our special education students, our special needs students, and our ELLs, our English language learners, are both second-class students. So they're students who are in the shadows. And parents, Latinx parents, understand this, and they often will do everything they can to make sure that their their child is not classified as an English language learner at the same time that often they're raising their kids speaking multiple languages. So parents are caught in a really complicated situation. Teachers are caught in a complicated situation. Students are caught in a complicated situation and administrators are caught in a complicated situation. So we've got to do better on so many different levels around these these kinds of issues. The other tricky part is that there's the, the way in which these sorts of linguistic policies and, and institutional practices end up framing English language learning as the red herring so that the goal is to learn English and then you will be able to achieve and and participate in this mainstream school setting. But what about the millions of kids who were born and or raised in the U.S. who identify as monolingual English users or as English dominant and yet are still facing profound experiences of educational underachievement and marginalization? At what point, why is it that we use language as the rationalization for some populations, but then those populations learn English, and then it's no longer language, it's something else. It's their culture of poverty, or whatever X, Y, and Z other behavioral stereotype we want to mobilize. And so I worry about the ways that language is a rationalization for these much broader kinds of political and economic and historical issues. Well, and it's it, you're forcing people to always fight to prove their existence. Yes. It's like a snowball effect. Yeah, and it's it's that's the why the I think Nelson and I were so inspired by this Toni Morrison quotation where she says it's it, there will always be one more thing. You yeah, try yeah. to prove that you're legitimate in terms of language, in terms of your ability to create art, in terms of athletics, in terms of whatever form of prowess, art, uh, music, expressive practices, um, and it's never enough. It's never going to be enough because of this history that we have. It, it, especially for not examining it. 
and there are going to be so many people that are resistant to examine. Why do you think that so many people want to divorce identity from language? There are lots of ways that people want to divorce language and identity, other ways where people want to combine language and identity. I mean, the effort towards, so there's no official language in the United States at the federal level, but more than 30 states have adopted English as their official language. And so there are efforts to cultivate this sense of what language and identity are, or any act of disidentification is, by extension, an act of identification in some particular way. So we'd want to figure out what they're, what they're avowing at the same time that they disavow something. Um, but the effort to, I think, depoliticize language, which if I hear you correctly, I think that that's kind of what you're getting at. It's this way of saying, no, language is an objective fact. Correctness is an objective fact. Proficiency is an objective fact. Either I can understand you or I can't understand you. Either you spelled it correctly or you didn't. Either you conjugated that verb or you didn't. Either you defined that word or you didn't. And so there's this goal of positioning language, positioning commentary about language as, again, this unmediated, non-ideological kind of uh, perception. And so the effort is to just sort of say, look, we can all agree that language is this space that is outside of politics, that's outside of bias and identity and attachment. And and there's, I think, a, a profound kind of political project behind that that is central to liberal governance, to liberal kinds of political orders, which is to say, when you are in a liberal constitutional regime, that means that there's an agreed upon set of language ideologies that are understood. So the law is a language ideology, to be clear, in the sense is that we've agreed on this contract and its, its meaning is, is structured objectively because of how we've agreed that language works. And so these sorts of um, stereotypes about language use unifying, making a people more or less democratic, making a society more or less coherent and and, uh, unified, this kind of thing. These stereotypes are really, really powerful. And so there's a simultaneous depoliticization of language and hyper-politicization of language. And so it's both of those kinds of processes that I think we have to pay very close attention to. Yeah, I was just thinking of it as a a more simplified version of that. And it's true that I'm not thinking about about both of those things. I mean, I, I I feel like this is something that we do all the time. We pretend that we are unbiased about certain yeah. things and then we are like really hyper-partisan or whatever about yeah, yeah, the exactly. same thing. Yeah, I mean, and this is why these debates about, I think a language ideology's perspective is supposed to say, wait, we have to analyze language in culture in order to figure out what are the broader kinds of semiotic forms involved here and what are the broader historical and political and economic kinds of processes that are unfolding here, because what looks like language is actually, we see this happen with all kinds of semiotic forms or symbolic kinds of forms, whether we're talking about gender, X, Y, and Z, um, X, 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 Y, and Z sort of hierarchy, um, this, this hyper, this effort to, to both position oneself as disinterested. So I am the disinterested observer. I'm merely commenting on the world as it is. These ideas, uh, these forms of commentary about language are are systematically structured in relation to various forms of difference. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You say that we should be careful about how we advocate for bilingualism. Um, what do you think the best way we, listeners that listen, people that have kids in schools, people that care about kids that come to school with a language other than English, what can we do? when we advocate for bilingualism? Well, I think this looks different depending on what scale and what context. So we could talk about what it looks like for a teacher in the classroom context to build community through bilingual education and to anticipate the ways that different students in the class are positioned in relation to expectations about their language use. Yeah, that could be good because I think we have teacher listeners too. Yeah. I mean, one question for me with teachers is what's it mean to understand, to, to take account of these racial and class dynamics in relation to language that often elevate particular students? And what's it mean and, and that denigrate other students? What's it mean to look out, to be on the lookout for everyone's skill? That's the question for me as a teacher. And what's, 
if there is a particular learning goal, learning outcome, what's it mean to see a clear connection between what someone is already doing and that outcome? Because what I find in so many situations in terms of language, especially a whole range of other um, domains of learning and, and domains of skill is that the very things that we say that we want kids to be able to do, they're already doing in yes. different ways. It's just that we haven't cultivated a collective way of recognizing and honoring what people are up to. So I've seen, I've been in schools where the question is, how do we get these kids to read or write? You know, their literacy skills are low. When these kids are engaging in literacy practices all day long, they just don't happen to be the practices that are rendered legible or valuable or meaningful in the context of the school. And so I, I'm thinking about that on one level. There's a broader level, which is to say, how is it that bilingual education is structured or dual language education is structured in a school in relation to questions about who is it that designs the curriculum? Who's the teacher? Is the teacher associated with the community of, of language users? Or, so if, are we talking about two languages that are positioned in hierarchically distinctive ways in relation to one another? How is the language teacher positioned in relation to the hierarchically more marginalized or subordinate language form? Is that teacher from that community? Is that teacher have meaningful learning experiences within that community? And is that teacher positioned in such a way that they could honor the students who are coming to the classroom using languages, losing linguistic practices that are often marginalized in those contexts? At the policy level, it's a question for me of saying, wait a second, how is it that we've separated language learning from its history as a civil rights issue, from its history as a, a part of a much broader set of political struggles, so that we weren't just trying to increase linguistic proficiency or multilingualism and bilingualism, we were trying to transform a society that is systematically marginalized particular populations. And so what's it mean to think about language policy in relation to housing policy, health policy, living wages, this whole range of electoral questions about electoral representation. So how is it that we, if anything, you know, we double down on our commitment to linguistic rights as human rights and to language and its relationship with regard to social justice. But part of doing that involves creating a much bigger political vision. So I think it, it, these questions are relevant on really small everyday scales in, in schools and communities and on much broader sorts of political scales um, nationally and globally. It's so important. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, what could just one single listener do to not be so discriminatory um, in terms of of what someone looks like when you when you're looking at when you're looking at someone you think that they might speak Spanish or whatever? Like, what what can they learn from this this conversation we've had to be a bit better? Because I really do believe that people that listen to the show they want to be better, and you know they tell us that. So yeah, to me, I. Again, that kind of a question is really hard because yes, of course, of I, I worry that I worry that it recruits me to sort of say, I know that if you modify your behavior in this way, then the world will, will be better. <laughs> I guess what I what I'm thinking, the question I'm that I ask myself all the time is how do people in their everyday lives already live beyond the borders that we have arbitrarily imposed on ourselves and on others? And in terms of language and a whole range of identities in terms of commerce, in terms of collective mutual interdependence and responsibility for one another's well-being. I think that, that humans can be really scary people and scary creatures, but also beautiful creatures who can create alternative sorts of orders and imaginaries, and, um, and that's not reduced to humans either. So I guess it's less to me what someone could do and, and um, to modify their behavior in some sort of narrow way. And more to me about cultivating, what's it mean to collectively participate in a project of cultivating an alternative mode of perception or alternative modes of perception where we're recognizing worlds that are already in existence. We just didn't know how to recognize them before. So that, that you know, you can arbitrarily separate languages from each other you can arbitrarily position groups as racially superior or inferior. You can arbitrarily demarcate borders, but that doesn't mean that people live their lives or that the world then is completely reduced to those narrow sorts of distinctions. And so what's it mean to look beyond them? And what's it mean to connect that, that mode of perception or the cultivation of that mode of perception to broader kinds of political struggles 
that are at once attuned to contemporary rights challenges, but also always looking back to, to previous moments to sort of say, wait, what are we inheriting here? How are we working collectively to build on previous struggles? And what kinds of futures are we imagining? Perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. I would have said the exact same thing. The exact same words. <laughs> the exact same words. It's a hard question, though. It's a hard question. No, it's a very hard question. You're right. I mean, it's it's complicated because we're all yeah. Like, you, there's no one f- easy fix for these things. That's what no. we always are looking for. Is like like our easy fix is don't be an asshole. But <laughs> yes. you know, it's very much tongue in cheek, and we know that it's not enough. Right. Right. Yeah, because because nice people scare me too. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we don't really mean be nice. <laughs> we just mean don't be an asshole. Those are different. Those are different. It's true. It's true. No, I get it. I mean, look, as a, I, I don't begrudge you. Don't be an asshole is a, a useful <laughs> working slogan. <for> <laughs> <laughs> but it's obviously very flattening, and we understand that. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, I mean, I think the listeners understand that, too, because we, like, give them so much information. It's, like, it's obvious, like, this is all so much bigger than our ourselves me and carrie to like specifically bigger than us so it's a good starting point for a lot of people <laughs> and if you have to start somewhere i guess don't be an asshole is a place to start <laughs> to think about. but yeah yeah if we start perceiving things if you're like noticing these things that you weren't perceiving before you start perceiving them i i mean it's kind of organic that you're gonna you're gonna want to kinder to people well this has been fantastic thank you so much yeah thank you i'm so really much. excited to get your book I'm excited for you to have it. I mean, now that I feel like I've been talking to people about it for so long, and a lot of my close friends have, are giving me a lot of trouble for it. This <laughs> like, is it real? It's is this not really a real happening? thing, clearly. <laughs> it was great to talk to you again. And people, don't, don't be, be an asshole. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> the Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VocalFriesPod. You can email us at VocalFriesPod at gmail.com, and our website is VocalFriesPod.com.